0: Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is week six of our study of Christology, the study of Jesus Christ, and today we're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus Christ, the significance of this event, and how relevant it is to our salvation. So let's go ahead and begin by reading the scripture for today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. It's not very long. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up out of the water, and, behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And, behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So this event happens here roughly about 400 years after the last book of the Bible was written, which was the book of Malachi. And so this is called the Age of Silence by most scholars. 400 years of history where there was no word from the Lord and no prophet, And then we have, out of nowhere, we come John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And out of nowhere, out of the wilderness, he comes calling all of Israel to repent and to be baptized. So this particular event is what marks Jesus's official beginning of his public ministry. And this is after he becomes ordained by the Father and the Holy Spirit in combination with the sun. So you can see a clear activity of all three persons of the Trinity here in one place, which is very nice to see. So it's really important that we recognize the radical nature of this event, because again, not only did it come four centuries after the last word from the Lord, but John comes out of the desert, and this is the traditional meeting place between God and his prophets. Because so often in history, his prophets come out of obscurity, or they come out of nowhere and start preaching the Word of God. And as we can see, John the Baptist is speaking as one having authority from God. Because if we recall his story before he was born, remember that John the Baptist and Jesus are relatives. The mother of Jesus, Mary, is cousins with Elizabeth and Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist, so I guess that would make them second cousins. But the point is is that it was prophesied that John the Baptist would be born with the Holy Spirit, so that's an interesting fact, but secondly is if we recall from when Elizabeth was pregnant, when Mary went to go visit Elizabeth, the baby leaped within her womb, and that was John the Baptist leaping within the womb to hear the voice of Mary, and knowing who, in what presence he was in, even as an unborn child. How amazing is that? So it's very clear that from the beginning, John the Baptist had authority from God to speak these messages of prophecy, and to speak repentance. So as you can see, John is not offering salvation. He is offering repentance to prepare the way for salvation, which he knows is through Jesus Christ. So the most radical thing that John did was to call people out of Israel to be baptized. Now, the concept of baptism was not new in Israel. Baptism is not something that John the Baptist invented, okay? His name is called John the Baptist because there are a lot of other Johns in this time period, and so that just distinguishes him from other Johns. So, It's not like his last name was the Baptist, but that was more of like a profession. He was a prophet, and his activity was baptizing people. They were baptized because they were considered unclean in the sight of God. And he even calls out these Pharisees and these Sadducees because they came to be baptized and their hearts were not right. They were there for the superficial activity, but yet they were refusing to repent because being the religious leaders of their day, they didn't feel they were doing anything wrong. They were just following what everyone else was doing. So his message to these Pharisees was greatly offensive to them, calling them a brood of vipers, that they were fleeing from some sort of judgment. So he's calling them evil. As we can see, Jesus was not the first one to do that. John was the first one to do that. So the message from God is consistent between John and Jesus when it comes to these Pharisees. So anytime that a Gentile, someone from outside of the Jewish culture, wanted to join the covenant community of Israel, they would be baptized in this same kind of way, which is called a proselyte baptism. This was required because, again... They were considered to be unclean. The Jewish people were clean, but Gentiles were considered an unclean people. And so they had to be baptized in order to be allowed in the circle. So it sounded very weird for John to come along and begin asking Jews to submit to a cleansing ritual. Because they are already Jews. And so that was confusing to them. But when he mentions repentance, then people start getting the idea... This is what we're supposed to be doing. So we see that at the beginning of John's ministry here, that it quotes something from the Old Testament, and to show that there would be a forerunner who would prepare the way for the Messiah, and it's identifying John as that very forerunner that was prophesied hundreds of years before. He calls the people to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. The king of this kingdom is about to appear, who is the Messiah, and Israel is not ready because she is unclean as a people. This isn't necessarily in the reading that we gave, but one of the other accounts of this shows that when John saw Jesus approaching, he exclaimed this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This aspect of Jesus' ministry caused the Jews the most difficulty of all. And I'm sure we see that throughout the life of Christ. They did not grasp how the Messiah could be a sacrificial lamb. Because again, the idea of what they thought the Messiah was going to be like was dramatically different from what Jesus actually was. They imagined a political Messiah. They imagined somebody coming on a white horse with a huge army wiping out the Roman Empire, and redeeming the people from being oppressed by a nation. But that's not exactly what happened, right? We know that. They imagined to be of handsome appearance, and having some sort of regal background, and being physically put on the throne of Israel. But that didn't happen either. So he was nothing like they expected. Even John the Baptist had doubts later on in the book of John. A few chapters after his baptism, when John is in prison, it says that he sent a couple of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? And one would think that if you saw the Trinity all in one place confirming this appointed time, that that would be enough evidence for you to believe it. But yet, because Jesus was so radically different from what even John the Baptist thought the Messiah was going to be like, he had to go one more time and ask him, are you really the Messiah? Or are you a great prophet? So even John had trouble with that. So that just shows you how different he was from what people expected from a Messiah. They did not think he was going to be a sacrificial lamb. So this baptism of Jesus here marks the beginning of his ministry. Is his ordination, if you want to call it that. And so at his baptism, he is anointed in order to fulfill Isaiah chapter 61. There's much of Isaiah 61 that we could say is part of this fulfillment of prophecy, but let me just read you the first two verses and you'll see my point. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. We also see somewhere in Scripture that he went to a synagogue, unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, and said this exact same thing, except for that last half of verse 2, where it says the day of vengeance, because that's going to be in his second coming that that happens. But then he, what does he do? He rolls up the scroll and says, I have just fulfilled this in your midst. Boom, just like that. So this is the prophecy that is being referred to here, because he was actually anointed by the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill the mission of the Messiah. And of all people, John the Baptist himself tried to prevent Jesus at first from doing this baptism because baptism was for sinners. And if he's the Lamb of God, a perfect man, and yet he's also God, obviously he has nothing to repent of. So why does he need to be baptized? Jesus did not explain everything to John. He didn't have to. But all he told him was, let it be so for now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So what does that mean? This statement is absolutely crucial to understand the work of Christ. It meant that Jesus was to obey every jot and tittle of the law, every stroke and mark of the law. Why? Because the life and work of Christ is twofold, and we need to understand this piece because this is extremely important. If God's people are required to submit to this baptism, he submits to it as well on their behalf, because his redemptive work does not begin at the cross. When did his redemptive work begin? It began eternity past. So this was... Nearing the end of his redemptive work, not the beginning. Not only did Jesus have to die for our sins, but he had to live for our righteousness. You see, if Jesus only died for your sins, that would leave you sinless, but not righteous. The passive obedience of Christ refers to his willing submission to the wrath of God on the cross. But his active obedience refers to his whole life perfectly obeying the law. And because he perfectly obeyed the law, therefore we receive the blessing rather than the curse. So it is what we call a double imputation. So we understand that when Jesus went to the cross and he died for our sins, our sins were imputed to him imputation meaning like a transfer even if you could put it like in a, in, a, in bank terms you have i want to transfer money from my checking account to my savings account i am imputing funds from one account to another in the same way when we repent and we receive salvation our sins are imputed to the cross of jesus christ And then he gives us in return sinlessness, not in the way that we no longer sin, but we are clean in the sight of God because of his salvation. But then he also imputes his righteousness to us. We would not have this righteousness if he didn't live a life of perfect obedience to the law that all mankind at that time was bound to. This was necessary for him to abolish the law, which we no longer fall under the law, but under grace. So that is why he did it in that way. So yes, we are declared sinless in the sight of God, but now we are also declared righteous. The righteousness within us allows God to see us in such a way that he will fully accept us. And without that righteousness, we would not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven the same way that, just because we're sinless, we're still not righteous and worthy in the sight of God, unless Jesus died for us and imputed his righteousness on us, which is a perfect righteousness. So it's profound what happened, and this is the beginning of that. So no, did he need to be baptized? No, he did not. But he did this because He wanted to impute his righteousness on us. But not only that, but he's making it very clear from the very beginning of his ministry, look at me. I am the one you are to follow. I am the one you are to imitate. Copy me if you want to be a righteous man. Copy me if you want to be acceptable to God. This is my expectation for you, And I'm going to lead by example. How beautiful is that? He didn't just tell us what to do. He did it himself to show us that it can be done. And that this is the expectation for you moving forward. So let's ask a couple of questions here. Why did John come baptizing with water? So baptizing with water was symbolic in that day. They clearly understood what that meant. To wash oneself with water was symbolic of purity. Because so often when priests or Levites would work in the house of God, they had to consecrate themselves. They had to purify themselves, and part of it was done by washing. So the act of washing oneself was symbolic to being cleansed, to be pure. Now, we understand it's not an external purity that God's looking for. He's looking at an internal purity. And that is why John the Baptist was so firm with these Pharisees, because they were coming for the wrong reasons. They were coming with wrong motives, and the Holy Spirit was giving him a way to look inside of their hearts and see the condition of their heart. Now, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So is this a new thing that he came up with, or is this something that has been going on for a very long time? Well, you be the judge of that, because I'm going to read you three small scriptures throughout the Old Testament, and you tell me if the message lines up with this. Isaiah chapter 31 verse 6 says, return to him from whom you have deeply defected. O sons of Israel. This is clearly a call to repentance, is it not? Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 7. I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So he's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel wanting them to return to him, to repent. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So clearly, this is a consistent message from God from times past, that he wants his people to repent and to return. He wants them to change their ways and come back to what God expects them to do. So does it have something in common with what John said? It's the same language. It's the same expectation. But in John's message, there is a sense of urgency because he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's old ways of saying, it is right around the corner. It is coming soon be ready. You need to get ready. And even today, we know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has already come, and he's already saved us from our sins, yes, but we know that he's going to come again. And we don't know when that's going to happen. The Messiah didn't come for thousands of years from the time that it was originally prophesied in the Garden of Eden. And if he finally came, and he was nothing like people expected. So in the same way, he's going to come again in a way that no one expects. And we have no idea when that's going to happen. It could be five minutes from now. It could be two days from now. It could be a thousand years from now. We don't know, but it's going to happen. We need to be ready. Our hearts need to be ready. We need to repent. Those who have tasted the goodness of the Lord are going to heaven, for sure, but we still have work to do. And those who do not know God need to repent, and God will regenerate and restore them. Let's think about this one. What does John mean when he tells the Pharisees and Sadducees that God is able from stones to raise up children for Abraham? It's a very interesting statement he made, isn't it? This isn't the first time this is even mentioned, though. Later on in the Gospels, it shows that when Jesus was being treated well by people and they were worshiping him as being the Lord, the religious leaders of his day were not liking what they saw. And he said that if these people don't cry out, the very stones will cry out. And so there's something significant about this. But what he's also referring to is the stones being symbolic of the Gentiles, the ones that are not in the Jewish circle, because it is clear throughout the Old Testament that he came to die and to save not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. The whole world is saved by him. Salvation is available to all who believe in him. So this is what it's referring to here, that he is able to raise up stones in the name of Abraham. Because again, we are not probably related to Abraham by blood, but spiritually we are his descendants, because we are children of God, much like Abraham was. So again, we ask this question, why is the active obedience of Christ as important as his passive obedience for our salvation. One makes you sinless and clean, right? And the other one makes you righteous. We have to understand that. There's two-fold imputation here. So as we conclude, I want you to walk away with a couple of things today. First of all, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were baptized most likely in water, right? That's not what saved you. That was a public demonstration of your faith. What really saved you was the baptism of your spirit that took place and made you a new creature. Remind yourselves daily of what that means and what the implications are of that. Our responsibility has increased greatly because we now have the Holy Spirit within us and we have a mission that we need to fulfill and that's to go make disciples of all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What are we doing to that end? And secondly, do not grow weary in praying for the Lord's kingdom to come. Christ's kingdom has already been inaugurated. He is seated at the right hand of God. He's already won. He is presently putting all his enemies under his feet. But we know that the kingdom has not been fully consummated, just like our salvation. Our salvation has not been fully consummated. The Holy Spirit is within us as a seal, a guarantee, a pledge of the promise of full salvation. But it hasn't been fully consummated yet, until the second coming, and until we die. But it's going to happen, and that is the joyous thing. So thank your God every day that you have been anointed for holiness by the anointed King. That is a unique privilege that we cannot simply look down upon or put no regard into. It is a fantastic privilege. Praise God for it. And with that, that's all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed this lesson, and we will pick this up next time. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.